This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is April 28th, 2022, and this is episode 287. I'm Stratal Lunderbaum. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, we're going to be thinking about redoing policing. We're going to be thinking about redoing family doctors. It's time to revamp the fundamental frontline services of the province. Thank you, patrons, for continuing to short support the show. You can join them, get access to the Slack community at patreon.com slash politicoast. Thank you as well to BC Today for continuing to partner with us. Make sure you check out Shannon's great work. Let's jump into the first segment. The Special Committee on Reforming the Police Act has dropped their report, Transforming Policing and Community Safety in British Columbia. It is 96 pages. It is dozens of recommendations. Oh, no, not even 11. But there's some sub points to each of them. So maybe it works out to dozens in the end. Uh, it's the outcome of a committee that was started a couple of years ago now, during many of the Black Lives Matter protests and this uproar and challenge to policing. We did a couple episodes on the history of policing in BC and some of the motivations for this. But now we have an all-party consensus. The NDP, the Liberals, the Greens are all on board. They listened to people across the province and have come up with what policing, they didn't even really come up with what policing should look like, but they found a direction to go to where it should probably change as a first step. So the committee received 411 submissions from individuals and organizations and 1,400 responses to its survey. Its 11 recommendations call for transformational change in policing and community safety. Right off the top, they emphasize that they recognize the scope of systemic racism in policing. They heard the distrust many people have of policing and just the many challenges facing police in and policing in 2022, particularly to try to bring this in, into alignment with the province's commitments to the United Declarations on Rights of Indigenous People, as well as many of the other uh, calls to action that have been issued against governments in Canada. And so, this is a fascinating document with just a broad overarching summary. Like, I haven't had a chance to read the whole thing because it just dropped this afternoon. I've gone through the recommendations. I've read the CBC coverage. But what did you take away from just the release, Scott? Uh, so, I've only released him the recommendations because likewise, I uh, that hasn't been enough time between the report dropping and us recording to digest all 96 pages of it yeah we both have full-time jobs and if we didn't we could do a lot more hint patreon.com slash politicoast <laughs> so the two things that i think caught my eye is that first off i guess technically second they're recommending that the rcmp be replaced with a bc provincial police service so this would be like the opp or i get is it securite quebec the bcpp would be quebec we used to have a provincial police force like we talked about, and in the, I want to say the 1950s, the 50s? somewhere the 50s around there. they disbanded it. Yeah, the federal government was really pushing provinces to make deals to have the RCMP come in and was offering a lot of money, and that tempted them in, and they came on board. The not-too-conspiracy-minded theory is that the feds had a real interest in having a national police force to keep an eye on communist activities, but having common police across the country had its advantages. But what the act, the review really finds in here is we're suffering from just a mess of different kinds of police across the province. You have several communities like Vancouver, New West, who have regional police or municipal police. I think Victoria has a regional police force. Victoria. Like Greater Victoria. No, like Victoria has its own police force. I think Saanich has its own police force. North Saanich and Central Saanich are under the RCMP, I think, as is a bunch of the Western communities. It has been a while since I've lived there in the region, but going off memory, 
I think Victoria and Sandwich were separate, and they're trying to like the two big blocks of. Okay, I have the list in front of me. There's a Central Sandwich Police, there's Sandwich Police, Port Moody, Oak Bay has its own cops. (laughs) Victoria and Esquimalt share cops. That's what I was maybe thinking. It's a mess. The RCMP cover anywhere that doesn't. There are actually one First Nations police force in the Stalatim mixed nation tribal police. Um, oh, and then of course there's the Canadian National Railway Police and the Canadian Pacific Railway Police and the transit cops in Metro Van, but I don't think those are being looked at via this. The point uh, being the, the transit cops actually did get a mention elsewhere in the document, mm-hmm. so they, they are also under consideration here. I think the um railway police are federally governed and wouldn't be covered here, but not 100% on that. So the hope um, here is to go to a provincial police force to simplify this mess, standardize training and services, and then even amalgamate some of the regional ones where it makes sense. This can deal with many of the issues we've seen in the past where police forces aren't talking with each other. That was a big challenge that was drawn out in the Picton inquiry a year's, number of years ago. And well, some of that has been addressed. There have still been outstanding issues in policing. I saw one of the news articles referenced in the 90s, the NDP commissioned a policing inquiry and had the Opal, Wally Opal investigate it. And he made a number of recommendations. And it says they largely let those sit on a shelf, which hopefully won't happen this time. The first recommendation is obviously just write a new act, Community Safety and Policing Act to, quote, govern the provision of policing and public safety based on the values of decolonization, anti-racism, community, and accountability. And that would involve engaging Indigenous peoples and nations, municipal governments, and everyone else in the drafting of the legislation. There's a big push through here as well. I think the two main people or stakeholders, let's say, that they're really emphasizing working with are Indigenous nations and municipalities. And based on the recent kerfuffle between the city of Vancouver and the province over how much the police budget can be. I think that makes sense that we need a new relationship that's actually better defined. Yeah, so that uh, was actually what I was referencing with my second thing that kind of caught my eye is I was looking through here because of that kerfuffle about whether or not they were going to be direct recommending direct changes to the weird model where like the police put their budget proposal to the police board says yes or no, and that kind of goes to city councils to to accept or reject, and if it gets rejected, then the police can appeal that to the provincial government to then overrule cities on it. <clears throat> it's a mess, and I don't necessarily agree with the city council's uh, plan to, to cut police funding. It should be their decision. They're the responsible body for raising the revenues to pay for the services here, and like basic accountable government says that they should be the ones to set the expenses too. And if people don't like the balance they strike between the level of police service and the funds they're willing to require with uh, local taxation, then they can vote them out and put a new council. But it, it should be their decision. It shouldn't go through this weird convoluted thing where it gets appealed up to the province and the city councils really don't have much say on it. There's some stuff in here about tweaking some of that but they don't go as far as actually saying we want to move budgeting entirely under city control yeah i think a lot is left for further refinement and consultation and development digging into this recommendation about bringing in a new police force it is imagining a new structure to police boards for example it explicitly says mayors should not serve as the chair but there should still be municipal representation on those boards um, it yeah, also there council representation, I believe, was the recommendation in there. Yeah, municipal council recommendation. There should also be broader public and community representation, indigenous people of color, diversity of experiences, including policing experience, lived experience, business and law experience. This also raises questions about uh, finances and costs to municipalities. The report notes in some of the write up for this recommendation that some of the other later recommendations that we'll get into call for slight detasking or at least improving 
non-policing support so police aren't the default first responders in every single case and that will hopefully take stress off police to the point where their budgets won't have to be as big or at least can balance out yeah they it, yeah, it wouldn't necessarily result in less police budget or direct shifts of uh funding from one to another because one thing they do note uh in the report here is that there is a division of powers on those things. Cities fund the police, but they don't fund mental health services and other sorts of services in that way. I think it was the District of Saanich that noted in their <clears throat> submission that, yeah, if we cut our police budget, that, that money's going to sewers and other stuff. It's not, the municipalities do, it's not necessarily going to the envisioned alternative services because the municipal governance hat, the municipalities hat, Forget the exact one. A community uh, charter? One. Yeah. The, the governing provincial legislation doesn't give cities that task. The next element of the recommendations, number four, shifts direction from policing actually entirely and says the province should create and appropriately fund a continuum of response to mental health, addictions, and other complex social issues with a focus on prevention and community-led responses and ensuring appropriate first response. This means uh, increasing coordination among police health mental health and social services and integrating mental health into 911 call options so you're not just stuck with do you need police ambulance or fire truck and those seem like actions that can move a lot faster versus negotiating a new police force and developing that we've seen surrey try to work on it and it's slowly moving but it's going to take a few years i saw a cbc report that the province's contract with the RCMP is in place until 2032. I don't know if we can get out of that sooner than 10 years, but maybe 10 years is the target for all of this to be done. I'm, this this is not a small project they've written up. Yeah, it's likely to take a minimum of five years. If everything gets pushed through aggressively fast, I would figure. And yeah, t 10 years may be more realistic. At the same time, though, like, this isn't a commercial contract. I'm sure there's it's between two governments, and if there's political will at both the provincial and federal level to change that, it'll happen. It'll get changed, and there won't be a huge litigation over it. The fifth recommendation is in just ensuring equitable access to high-quality police and public services. This is just making sure. This one's pretty vague, but it's ensuring police are responsive, informed by the community having provincial-wide standards, particularly regarding people experiencing mental health crisis, wellness checks, adopting a dynamic and flexible approach to policing, uh, and expanding the use of culturally appropriate restorative justice programs throughout BC. It's basically making sure that if you're interacting with police in Prince George, Bella Coola, or downtown Vancouver, that you can expect the same treatment. And I'm hoping fair and just treatment, not just treat everyone poorly it sounds like there's an effort to try to have i, I would cons presumably that is the provincial standards referenced yeah there uh number six is talking about an equitable and fair shared funding model for municipalities considering the local needs of health and social support services and geography as well as options to phase in or incrementally increase the municipal share of policing costs yeah, so smaller municipalities don't necessarily pay the same share of their policing costs. If it's under 5,000, basically don't pay for police. That's on the provincial government. And then there's a couple tiers between, I think, 5,000 and 15,000 on there. Yeah, yeah, there's a pretty significant jump between the 5,000 and 15,000. The 5,000 being responsible. 5,000 not being responsible for 70% policing costs and 15,000 and not responsible for 90% of policing costs. So they would be adjusting those ratios and not having quite a, a steep gradient on that. Which seems fair enough. If you have 4,999 residents and two people move in, all of a sudden you've gone from zero police budget to... 70% of the cost of police in that community. Like it's Run a pretty... those people out of town. <laughs> I mean, that, that based on some of Horgan's rhetoric lately, that would be his solution, or at least his lament that there were people moving without bringing their services with them. 
Recommendation seven is to enhance and standardize initial and ongoing police education and try to shift police culture. This is going to be a challenge given we just had the thin blue line badge controversy erupt in the city of Vancouver with the chief of police defending it in a way that the chief of Calgary police did controversially. This is probably going to be one of those controversial ones where critics of the police point out that a lot of places have tried training and education and they struggle to make big changes. So I'll be interested to see how hard they go here because a couple courses aren't going to change the culture. There is an emphasis here on recruiting from many different backgrounds, skill assessments, different evaluation models, and mandatory psychological assessments regularly. Recommendation eight is to start collecting and reporting publicly disaggregated race-based and other demographic data. This is in line with, I think, the bill we're going to see the province bring in next month that they've been talking about for quite a while on just helping provide the data to help monitor many of these questions. I don't think that one's likely to be controversial. Next, there will be another new independent civilian-led oversight agency responsible for overseeing conduct complaints, investigations, and disciplinary matters. I think this is one that's been called for in a number of times. What drew my eye on here is the sub-recommendation E, which is that they'll need to revise the definition of misconduct to include demeaning and discriminatory conduct, language, jokes, statements, gestures, and related behaviors, which, like, I support that. It's just one of those things that I'm surprised they have to bring that in. That is such a low-level recommendation. Okay, guys, don't be racist assholes to one another or the public. And then the Legislative Assembly is tasked with appointing an all-party committee to underview, appointing an all-party committee to take a broad review of the Mental Health Act to modernize it and make sure it's in line with this as well, and to establish a second all-party committee to continue to monitor the implementation of this report and the new Community Safety and Policing Act once it's in place, which both seem like necessary recommendations to make this happen. I think the Mental Health Act review is long overdue in many different ways. So, good to see. Yeah, overall, I think these are going to be fairly uncontroversial recommendations with, you know, the possible exception that Bill Thielman's going to get angry the RCMP are leaving again. But, God, uh, I don't, I'm not going to be excited for the national or the provincial referendum on keeping the RCMP. That's actually just retire already, but it's neither here nor there. But yeah, other than that, these all do seem all fairly uncontroversial. The, there's obviously going to be new costs for standing up a provincial police service if the government follows through on the recommendations, which I think they likely will, but also hardly a break-the-bank type of uh, situation. I think it's stronger than critics of the police feared. Like It is more bold recommending going to a provincial police and amalgamating a bunch. This is a lot of stuff that would be really... I think necessary to see we can just look at the RCMP both their history and their behavior there's an ongoing inter- inquiry right now in Porta Peak over the massacre that happened there and just the RCMP's utter failings and their behavior both during that and even during this inquiry should disqualify them from being taken seriously as an institution let alone many other things we could say about that force so that I welcome. That said, I'm just trying to scan some Twitter reactions. Garth Mullins, Vandu drug user activist in Vancouver, is critical of the potential of police creep into healthcare and possible surveillance. For example, uh, cops being tied to addiction responses or even connected in that any way is a concern. I think the push, which ties to the toxic drug crisis, for a long time was to move drug use from a criminal matter to a health matter. But we're seeing that's still not been sufficient where they've managed to do it. And there's a lot of push to even go, what if it's just a social issue in the same way alcohol is? People are just going to use drugs all the time. So we just need to manage that. That's on the more radical end. But we are going to see some of those critiques out there. Like, honestly, the big challenge is going to be, do does the government do anything with this? I think they likely will. There's Reading through this, there's also nothing here that I could really 
see being particularly controversial for uh, the people out there who see policing as a, a core government service that is important to the public safety. And there's none of the, I think, more radical suggestions that activists were wanting made it in here on that. So as a result, I don't think there's going to be a huge amount of pushback beyond, I don't know, some municipalities might not like their police forces being amalgamated. And there's always just a little uncertainty when you replace one institution with another but like, other than that stuff, there there isn't a huge amount here that's likely to cause much consternation. Yeah, I mean, the ministerial statement from Mike Farnworth today was that he welcomes the report. It came. It, it was. It's an important report. He looks forward to reviewing it, and I think he did line up that there are plans to start discussing the recommendations with stakeholders over the coming months and into the summer this government's commitment has been under the uh, Declaration of Rights of Indigenous People Act to not, in theory, bring forward legislation without robust consultations. So perhaps that's where the next step of the conversation begins. In the meantime, Surrey moves forward with its transition from RCMP to Surrey Police. And as Richard Zussman noted on Twitter, perhaps they'll simply go from the Surrey Police to the South Fraser Police or the Metro Van Police all within a decade. Do I lead into the second segment? Well, policing isn't the only service that is being looked at or a topic of discussion, both in question period and in various bits of reporting from the CBC and other places. There's a problem with a lot of people having no access to a family doctor and being a simmering problem, but seems to be coming to the surface as a major topic of interest for the government. Yeah, this from the outside, because I'm privileged enough to not have issues finding a family doctor recently, or even in the past few years, my partner has done a ton of work to make sure we have had a family doctor. Um, but over the past few months, I've seen, or even a couple years, but accelerating in the last few months, an increasing number of articles talking about you know, family doctor shortages, challenges with this, a lot of focus on the fee-for-service system and doctors complaining that they only get 25 or $30 per visit and you can't, you just can't live off that without a detailed dive into the economics of running a family practice, which are complicated. And I don't doubt that it is difficult, but doctors are also still taking home a fairly decent amount. And so the yeah, they, push um, has been weird to watch. I feel like it has been initially pushed very much by like doctors of BC and the College of Family Doctors, but there are people suffering. Like, I don't want to belittle the state of family doctor practices in the province. Yeah, so there was a one, or at least a couple articles I think characterized it as some doctors are making minimum wage, or effectively making minimum wage or less, which seems unlikely if you do the if you assume half the time is felt spending out paperwork unpaid that would so their their hourly would be effectively 30 bucks an hour that's 58k which seems annually which seems low for a doctor even in general practice something doesn't make sense on the math on that one nevertheless there are still some no doubt challenges with the the economics of running a family practice like the thing to make clear is the default system in bc is this fee-for-service system i need to go see my doctor for whatever reason my head hurts i book an appointment i go i have my 10 15 minutes with the doctor they say take some tylenol whatever the doctor gets to bill msp for most of those kind of visits for a standard amount about $30 for that 15 minutes. And then they use the amount they collect from all of those uh, visits to pay the cost of operating a small business. So pay the nurses who are on staff, pay the admin assistants, 
pay the rent, pay taxes, pay the other utility bills, and what's left over they get to take home kind of situation. So it can be tight. I imagine it is extremely stressful and many report that because I imagine you go into family medicine not because you want to be a small business owner, but because you want to help people feel better. <laughs> There's a certain amount of, or you want to make a lot of money because you want to be a doctor, but, or you get forced into being a doctor by stereotypical family pressures. But just this, so you have this like challenging structure, but we also just don't have a lot of data on what the problem is. I, I did some poking around earlier. They're, the best we have are surveys that are either from the College of Family Physicians in BC or Statistics Canada, and both do a sort of, do you have a family doctor survey of people, to which we get around 80, 84% of British Columbians, which isn't great. We would hope everyone has one. But I know if I didn't have a family with young kids, we and especially if I was living alone, I probably wouldn't have a family doctor. Yeah, like when I moved back to the province, it is was not a priority finding one being a fairly healthy person at that point in my mid 20s and it's, it's one of those things i've just never really gotten around to since because i've thankfully been pretty healthy then i haven't really needed to to go find one but i i imagine there's probably a few people in my uh situation like that yeah and then the other factors that are getting thrown in here the executive B director of bc family doctors in one report from a couple of years ago, I read mentioned that according to one of their surveys, 38% of family physicians in BC are 55 or older and two thirds are over 60. So there's like this looming generational crisis of family doctors about to retire, which yeah, strains with the number. 40% will retire within the next, I think it was decade or two. Yeah. Which is a lot. Yeah. And those who are working are also working harder because their patients are getting older and you don't tend to get healthier as you get older. You tend to need to see your doctor more. And so there's those two kind of strains as well as I've seen a couple of the thing, a couple of the articles argue that the fee provided for service has not kept pace with inflation. Now, if you ask- and That was before we hit higher inflation than the like one, two percent. And all these problems existed before COVID. And then you bring in COVID and everything just goes extra challenging. The, gov the provincial government's been hounding about, hounded about this. They have tried to do a few things. The big focus they've had since forming government in 2017 has been these urgent primary care centers, which are like a step between, they're between walk-in clinics and the ER, because I've been to, or at least have taken a child to one before. The idea is to try to relieve strain from both hospitals, but also clinics as well. It's like, sometimes you can't see your family doctor for two or three days, but you also don't think you have something so urgent, you need to go to ER. So you're like, I need a, I need an in-between thing. And that's what those exist for. But those are absurdly busy already because there aren't enough of them. But the doctors who work there don't have to work on fee -to service. I don't believe they get a bit more of a salary type approach. There are also, I think, some primary care networks they're trying to roll out, which again, still in that pilot phase where it's not clear there's enough of them. So there are some projects being tried, as far as I know, but we're still facing this crisis, especially anecdotally and from a couple of the data sources, it sounds like Victoria has it really bad. Uh, on the other side of the aisle, the BC Greens are putting out a petition and they've been really on this the last couple weeks with Sonia Fursa now doing Twitter threads and some editorials calling for some changes. Their current petition on their website calls for an overhaul of the primary care system to modernize the fee-for-service payment model and to expand alternate payment models to better reflect demand for in-person team-based health care. So that sounds fine. There's probably some room for improvement on and the administrative side and how the payments are structured. There's still a problem that like it's hard to find a family doctor because there just aren't enough doctors out there for everything. And part of the logic of improving the payment structures and everything is that you would incentivize less people to pursue specialties rather than go into family practice. But 
<clears throat> like looking at what I can find on how long it takes to see a specialist in BC and well across the country too, but particularly in BC, it doesn't exactly seem like there's an overabundance of specialists where oh you get a referral and you can pop in the next day because we just have so many specialists that are sitting around waiting for uh, patients to come in. Like I can give one direct personal example is the BC Children's Hospital had one qualified pediatric heart surgeon for quite a while and they had been trying to recruit a second because that's the kind of thing you want to back up on. <laughs> oh, Dr. Gandhi's on vacation. Sorry, you can't have your child's urgent heart surgery. It would stress you out a lot. And he was great, but he got into personal conflicts with the other doctor who was there just before him and then that person was on leave and then that person won. It's a mess. He won a court case getting his job back, but then he wasn't qualified because he needs to be supervised for heart surgery. And now Dr. Gandhi has apparently left BC Children, so they're back down to one not qualified to practice by himself heart surgeon. And I think they've brought in a locum from Edmonton to supervise him. But this is not a great situation and hasn't been a great situation for a while. Whereas a Stollery Children's in Edmonton, and I think uh, Sick Kids in Toronto, which are the other two major hospitals that do children's pediatric heart surgery, have multiple pediatric heart surgeons because you need multiple, like I said. And so the question is, like, why has BC Children's in Vancouver been struggling to attract top talent when they have a brand new facility with the uh, tech center that's been built onto children's? And I've not gotten a good answer to that. Like, obviously, there are egos in play when you deal with the individuals who go into things like pediatric heart surgeon. I think all the stereotypes are true. But there's still a failure of administration to manage these personalities and to get the recruitment they need to do. Yes, that's a long way of saying I agree with you, Scott. There's an issue with specialists as well. Yeah, so like ultimately, this I think comes down to the fact that we just don't have enough doctors and it's fine to play around the edges with how MSP structures their, their administrative and payment side, but... I think you really actually have to get to the point where we just have a lot more doctors in the province, and that's going to take a bunch of work and some probably messy fights with the, what, is it, what would it be, College of Physicians? The various professional bodies in the That would be the space. main one. Yeah. <sighs> I haven't looked at all the list of colleges recently, and I think it's colleges they're physician. already picking fights with them because there's a whole... Health Professions Review Act that's ongoing that's recommending amalgamating a bunch of them. So the fight's already happening. You'll be happy to know. Yeah, the doctors on Loadout want to be uh, their own separate thing on that. But yeah, like I, I think the province, if they want to get serious about this, just need to get more doctors practicing medicine, period. And yeah, maybe try and tweak the balance on how those shake out between GP and specializations. But Really, I think you just got to be putting more people through either through med school or through bringing in more foreign trained doctors, which we have people in BC who have medical degrees from out of country who just can't practice because their credentials aren't recognized. And I don't know the, the various the levels of how good various medical schools that aren't in Canada are, but... I presume many of them are decent or definitely decent enough that you're better off having them as a doctor than not having a doctor at all. Yeah, the province, I'm just looking at another article, had a plan to do a pilot project where uh, foreign trained doctors could be associate physicians in the interim while they passed whatever additional qualification they needed to, but the province, like most governments, is blaming COVID for delays in sorting all of that out. And I think we talked about last week, they managed to reach a deal with the nursing college to reform some of the credential certifications for nurses, but they're, I think, still also working on this with um, physicians. So, Lots of work to do there on the immigration, like you said, expand the number of med school slots, and then just critically make sure people stay to whatever, if we're graduating a doctor, make them stay. 
Well, not make them stay. Well, you can incentivize make them, stay, them. But you can you can incentivize them. You could probably up the fees for GP work. And you, I don't know the process could also look at doing something similar with the military does uh, with the the ROTP program. The military will pay for an officer's education at, at university, and then they have to serve for a certain number of years afterwards. And there is no reason the province couldn't offer to pay for some or all of med school for doctors in training if they worked as a GP for some number of years afterwards. And that has a huge equity implication because med school is very expensive and ensuring that people can attend it regardless of ability to pay would be very valuable. I Uh, I should also just not do the annoying military thing or just say an acronym and not explain it. This ROTP is Regular Officer Training Plan. Fair enough. And the other thing this all comes back to as well is the other just not medical challenges facing our facing life in British Columbia, like the fact that it is so impossible to buy a house unless you have a massive amount of intergenerational wealth or some other privileges like that. I'm pretty sure if you're fresh out of even if you don't have medical school debt and you're like a GP making some making a decent amount, you're making six figures, you probably still can't buy a house in Metro Van. And if you can't buy a house, you can't or get a good place to rent, you're going you to buy, be a bit more transient. Yeah. Like a, a doctor's salary, that might not be enough to buy a West Side house, but there are definitely other forms than a single detached house that are affordable to someone with that salary in the city here. Nevertheless, it is a pretty but not huge, if they have debt. <laughs> yeah, it's also a pretty huge drain. Like, presumably, there's at least some percentage of doctors that go into it for the lifestyle benefits that the salary offers. And if that's getting eaten up by housing, that you lose a lot of that benefit. So fix housing, you fix the family doctor shortage. That's my advice, right? Is this another data point in the zoning theory of everything? Sure, why not? But how will zoning fix the police, Scott? We didn't deal with that. That I would have to think on a bit. Like I mentioned, the only other thing I'll mention is, like I mentioned earlier, the Premier's response when pushed on much of this is to challenge the federal government to pay more and to you know bring more to the table. And it's one of those claims that is both yeah, you have a point. The federal government is not paying what they used to into healthcare as healthcare costs have risen. The share has fallen more and more on the provinces. But also, a lot of the tweaks we've talked about are not federal. Like paying doctors more, that's something the feds can definitely help with. Changing foreign medical credential certification, I believe, is pretty squarely within the province. Yeah, that is. I think entirely within provincial jurisdiction. And even on the get more money in for the various expenses on this, the province has options here. If they need to invest some more in medical school slots, they can borrow money to make those investments, particularly on if there's like long-term capital costs associated with that. That makes a lot of sense to to fund that way. And also they like the province is not <clears throat> in terrible financial shape. There's both room to, room to adjust spending upward a bit, as well as adjust tax rates to bring in a little more revenue on this. Like healthcare Ta- for tax form- current doctors to fund future doctors. <laughs> Suppose that is one way to do it. The province has options here, and importantly, the province is also the the government that is explicitly tasked with the job of healthcare in our constitutional order. And if they don't like the results that their particular policies have, they should uh, step forward and make those changes rather than doing the easy thing that is practically tradition in Canadian politics of blaming some other government for their own unwillingness to, to make the hard choices. Hey, I started off the top of this segment with some of the things the province is doing, but as is seemingly too often the case these days, the scope of the crisis is not matching the 
amount of action by the province, even where the amount of action is like significant historically. <laughs> and sh- this is a government that is doing a lot. They're just not doing enough because we need more than a lot right now, if that makes sense. Let's move on to quick takes. And while we're in British Columbia, we said goodbye to BC Liberal MLA Stephanie Cadu this week as a member of the Legislative Assembly as she had her last sitting days before moving off to become the federal government's first chief accessibility officer, which is a pretty cool position, probably pretty much in honor of her work in the legislature. And I think she's pretty widely respected. The, The government decided to allow something historic to happen in the legislature, which was to debate a private member, her private members bill, which was the first private members bill that has been debated in private members time in 15 years at second reading. They usually just die at first reading, which is quite sad in this province. Yeah, the the iron grip the governing party has on the legislative calendar and the order paper is it's not without its downsides. I, most private members' bills in any parliament don't go very far, but like federally, at least a few of them get debated, and if you're the MP that's lucky enough to get uh, an early draw in your in the order to put on uh, a private member's bill, you can potentially get one passed. Here in BC, it's basically a non-starter. A huge amount of the time, they end up just being like signaling bills more than anything else. Although not in this case, as it's natural, decent bit of legislation that for some reason the government has been unwilling to look at for, was it five times now? Oh, I lost track of that. I th- the I think bill she the- put forward is an interesting bill. It's the Equal Pay Reporting Act. It would require businesses, I believe, above a certain size to report the pay gap between male and female employees. This is one approach that many have recommended to help reduce the pay gap between men and women. And the BCNDP have actually said they're going to bring in something like this following consultations because They've this does feel like something they should have done. They've been saying that since 2017. At some point, if someone introduces a bill five times to do it and you don't let it go forward, but say you're going to do it but never get around to it, you just aren't doing it. They they have started the consultation, I think, this year. I think with the goal of introducing the bill and the legislation next year. Like, I'm not defending how long this is taken, for sure. But it is slowly moving. But congrats to Cato on your new role and your time in the BC legislature. And speaking of the BC legislature, they'll have to call a by-election for her seat in South Surrey. But in the meantime, on Saturday, you can vote in the Vancouver-Kilchana by-election between Kevin Falk and Jeanette Ash, the Green, Libertarian, and Conservatives who I've all forgotten. I apologize to you all. Kim Fulton's going to win this. The only question is, will he clear an absolute majority or just get a plurality? It's a safe liberal seat. There's no tension. But what there was a lot of tension about was the Federal Emergencies Act, which was used earlier this year in response to the Ottawa blockades, occupation, whatever you want to call it. Under the at an inquiry must be held, and the government has now called the inquiry. We talked about this last week a little bit, as the deadline in the at to bring that forward was rapidly approaching. It's now come and gone with the order and council being issued. So this inquiry will be headed up by the Honorable Paul S. Rillo, presumably a judge, but I'm just not very familiar. Yeah, he's a former... Court of Appeal of Ontario Justice, and has also served the Supreme Court of Yukon and the Nunavik Court of Justice and Supreme Court of the Northwest Territories. A number of higher judges, a number of higher justices, I should say. Yeah. So the inquiry is directed to look at the circumstances leading up to the public declaration of the emergencies at the evolution and 
goals of Convoy Blockade Leadership and their participants, the impacts of that, of domestic foreign funding of that, the impact role and source of misinformation and disinformation, including the use of social media, impact of the blockades, including the economic impact, and the efforts of police and other responders prior to and after the declaration, as well as to set out findings, lesson learned, uh, including the use of the emergencies at the appropriateness, the effectiveness of the measures, uh, as well as make recommendations including about potentially modernizing the act. I mean, this is the first time this is used, and it, there may be a few things that the sun covers that didn't quite work and needs refinement. So this will be going through this year with the report due on February 6th of 2023. Yeah, this is actually invoked under the Inquiries Act. I wasn't sure how they would do that because it didn't seem like they necessarily had to. But that does mean it's a full public inquiry, which is nice to see. It's also nice that it doesn't, from the text of this, it doesn't look like the government's really trying to avoid the evaluation of their own decisions on this. There were some questions about how broad the terms of reference would be and whether or not it was just going to be, say, focused on, okay, what happened after we invoked the act and not did we actually need to use it and what led up to the decision to to go for it so this is seems reasonably comprehensive in a way that i don't think was necessarily a, a foregone conclusion particularly with the the way this government doesn't really root any of its own decisions i'll be interested to see how it rolls forward and what it finds in the next year as it goes forward one other thing that will be happening in the next year is the long-promised end of the gay blood ban, the thing that I think Trudeau started talking about in 2015 prior to his election, has finally pretty much been done as Canadian Blood Services announces they are removing the eligibility criteria specific to men who have sex with men. They had previously asked blood donors, "Have you, if you're a man, have you had sex with men in the past? I think it used to be several years, and then it got reduced, and it, they kept reducing the time period down to three months. And then and others would be asked if they've had sex with someone who's a man who's had sex with men. Uh, the idea being there's a increased risk of HIV, but the data on this is getting murkier, particularly in the last years as safe sex practices have just become much more prominent, and it also severes a lot of gay men are monogamous and therefore there's, you know, not as much risk. So it wasn't clearly a risk-based thing as much as it was ultimately just a homophobic thing. In place of that question, they are now asking if you've had new or multiple sex partners in the last three months. And if you answer yes to that, you're going to be asked if you've had anal sex with any of those partners. And if you have to wait three months until you've not done it in the bum to donate, uh, Notably, they don't care whether you used a condom or not, which should matter. So there's still criticism of this. Yeah, if I'm trying to think through why they aren't asking that, they probably should ask that question. But thinking through this, it's probably a risk thing where I don't know, people aren't always the most honest about how reckless some of their behaviors are. And it may be the case where they figure we we can't be 100% certain there's going to be everyone's going to be truthful on this so we're just going to err on the side of caution on that one the problem is their questions have broken trust for so long that i know many men who've had sex with men who just lied on that question because they know they're having safe sex and aren't concerned. And Canadian Blood Services shouldn't be doing the minimum. I want to see them doing something to rebuild trust with the queer community beyond just like, we've improved it a little bit, but we kept something that seems like you could criticize us for still being homophobic in there. Although in this one, they the the screening question before this, they, they don't specify same sets or opposite sets, right? Yeah, it's better. So like, yeah, it, that it's broad based. Like, yeah, it, it's now also catch in heterosexual couples that are heterosexuals who have new sex partners 
as well. So it, it it makes more sense to me on this than it the previous question did for sure. Yes, yes, it is less homophobic. Is it still homophobic? Possibly, <laughs> but it is better. It keeps getting a little bit better. Unfortunately, this change isn't coming until. No later than September 30th, they need to still refine the question and work it through their training procedures so that everyone and all their volunteers and staff are briefed. But a step forward, a, a good step forward at least, even if it isn't the perfect step forward. And finally, while we're on the subject of, I guess, queer rights and representation. I just wanted to flag that Statistics Canada released another chunk of data this past week, one of which was particularly novel in that it was the first time Canada has ever provided census data on the transgender and binary, non-binary community. Specifically on the census, they had asked, what was your sex at birth and what is the gender you are now? And from that, they are able to say there are 100,815 people who are transgender in Canada as of May 2021 and 41,355 who are non-binary of the 30.5 million who are 15 years or older. This accounts for 0.33% of the population or one in 300 people. Gen Z is notably more gender fluid at 0.79% versus the greatest generation in the interwar period is only 0.12%, which I think is what most people would expect based on changing social norms and recognition. But now we have the data. Also, Van uh, Victoria was notably more gender queer than most of the country. That actually tracks a bit. I mean, you'd expect big city or the major cities are even, I guess, Victoria's case, more mid-sized city by Canadian standards. You expect urban areas to probably show higher percentages. Victoria, I just imagine, is older, though, so that would track against it. The, the stereotype, it, it's the city of the newlyweds and nearly dead, so <laughs> there, there right. is also a reputation for having a fair number of younger people in, or younger adults there. Well, I look forward to the rest of the census's data drops throughout the year. I'm particularly look for, looking forward to the religion question in October. But until then, fun data to poke through. That's an awful end. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Sir Plotnikoff. Playtoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening. Thank you.